0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers, to Gilded Age murder, to gangsters, to fires, to pirates, to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Craig, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Drunken Dak, Two-Gun Tony, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Adam. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I have had an episode outlined and mocked up for weeks now about early modern economics and the differing theories between Spain and Portugal on the one hand and England and the Netherlands on the other, at least in regard to empire. But I keep pushing it back. And back and back, because there's always a Madre de Deus to talk about, or an exciting voyage, or something more fun. In the end, an episode about economic theory is just so boring. I mean, sure, it's probably important on some level to understand the different ways in which these imperial powers oppressed and enslaved, but is it a fun show? Not at all. There's no story, no characters, no drama to invest in. And in reality, those questions are divided upon a pretty thin line. So I'm not going to do that show. Instead, we're going to look at the first journey of the English East India Company, the voyage of James Lancaster and Red Dragon. Now, we're not doing that because it's a particularly consequential voyage. It wasn't. In terms of immediate consequences, there were virtually none. But it does introduce us to the other players in that region at that time. It introduces us to the transition moment between the Spanish and Portuguese in East Asia and the English and Dutch. It will give us a moment to look at those differing economic theories without getting too deep into the philosophy of it. We're going to be looking at that second hand, as it were, through the eyes of the English who were visiting for the first time. This is episode 128, The Sea Without End. When we left off, Queen Elizabeth had just granted a charter to the governor and company of merchants of London trading with the East Indies. She did that in December of 1600. Just over a month later, in February 1601, James Lancaster had the fleet ready to sail. Now, Lord Clifford was first on the charter, as was proper for a man of his station, but he didn't hold any official position within the company. It was, of course, below him to do so. So he gave command to James Lancaster. Lancaster was the obvious choice here. He was one of the very, very few English commanders who had rounded the Cape of Good Hope. He was one of the few English commanders who had been to Asia. And the other most notable English commanders with those distinctions were either dead or indisposed. Francis Drake and Thomas Cavendish, dead. John Hawkins, old Richard Hawkins, in the Spanish prison. I mean, there really wasn't anybody but Lancaster to take this on. Maybe Walter Raleigh, but he was busy in America at this point. Now, Lancaster had served, in addition to his 1592 voyage to India, under Francis Drake and John Hawkins. He was a privateer who was one of the most prominent gentleman adventurers operating, but focus more on the gentleman of that. He was a sensible, pragmatic merchant more than anything else. Red Dragon was the flagship of the fleet and the best prepared. Notably, Red Dragon had barrels of lemon juice on board, and every crewman was going to be given one spoonful of juice a day with breakfast, and I wonder if that's a sign that William Hawkins was on board at the time. Remember, Hawkins was there on Francis Drake's nearly disastrous scurvy-ridden voyage, only to have his life saved by lime juice. But we don't know that Hawkins was there. It's, in fact, equally likely that Lancaster was on that same voyage. However, the other three ships in the fleet, the Hector of 300 tons, the Ascension of 260, and the Susan of 240, they didn't have any lemon juice. Lancaster did not decree that everyone in the fleet had to carry it, he merely chose to carry it on his own ship. But that decision turned out to be a good one. In fact, it saved the voyage. All four ships got caught in the Atlantic doldrums, and they spent far longer at sea than they had originally anticipated. And by the time they reached the Cape of Good Hope, the crews of those three lesser vessels were severely weakened. More than a fifth of the crew had died from scurvy, and nearly all of those were on board one of those three ships. The crew of Red Dragon, on the other hand, were the very picture of vibrant health, because every man had a tablespoon of lemon juice every morning. Clearly, that was what kept the crew alive. However, it would take 200 years for any kind of citrus or anything containing any vitamin C to become official policy within either the Royal Navy or the East India Company. Why? Because a sailor's life is worth less than a barrel of lemon juice. It's no question why so many of these men would go on to turn pirate in the years to come. But for now, the crew of Red Dragon led the rest of the fleet to land at what would become Table Bay. Now, Table Bay is today overseen by Cape Town, South Africa, but of course there was no European settlement there at the time. There was, of course, a city at Cape Town's location, just not a European settlement. The English traded with the local merchants for their necessaries, the victuals, the food and water, and some wood, but there was a complication here. There was another fleet at table bay not a portuguese or a spanish fleet a dutch fleet was sitting there now this wasn't dutch territory yet but they were pretty clearly laying claim on the region and this is as good a time as any to talk about the dutch in the east indies even though the english had the first east india company and this was their first voyage The Dutch had already been to the East Indies, twice in fact. It all began a few years back with some good old-fashioned espionage. It was in the midst of the Dutch War for Independence against Spain. King Philip had just recently closed all Spanish ports to Dutch traders due to the war. However, the Spanish authorities politely ignored Dutch shipping at Portuguese ports. Even though King Philip was king of both nations, it was kind of a subtle message there, saying, I'm not your enemy, and look, you still need that Iberian trade, and I'm leaving it open for you, so why not just come on home? However, a Dutch merchant, spy, and Zee rover named Cornelius de Houtman sailed for Lisbon in 1592. Ostensibly, everything he was doing there was legal, but he spent his off time studying the maps and charts of Southeast Asia. He learned everything he could about Portugal's many voyages to India and the Spice Islands, and he took that knowledge home. About a year later, in 1595, Cornelius de Houtman and another Amsterdam merchant who had just returned from India organized the Long Distance Company for Journeys to India. If one were to count this long-distance company as the Dutch East India Company in its first form, it did come before the English East India Company, but most wouldn't, for reasons that will become apparent later. The voyage of the long-distance company was scurvy-ridden, and not tremendously successful. A number of men died, and in fact one ship had to be set adrift due to a lack of crew to sail her. Now, they passed right by a major port in Indonesia, Banda Ake. That's a city on the western end of Sumatra, and usually it would be the first obvious stop. But they had to pass it by because the Portuguese were there already. Instead, they moved on to Java, to the southeast. And their main success on this voyage was the establishment of a trading colony at the small Javanese village of Bantam. This would go on to become the major Dutch settlement in Indonesia. And in fact, yes, the Bantam Rooster is named after the roosters found on this island. The second Dutch voyage to Asia, from 1598 to 1600, was a much greater success. They netted a 400% return on their investment and made the decision, after that voyage to ask Queen Elizabeth's permission to hire English shipping. We talked about that decision and the repercussions of that decision last time, but this voyage was not, in fact, under the long-distance company. It was under a different organization called the New Company for Voyages to East India. The names and the money behind this voyage came from different people, so it wasn't the same organization. And in the wake of that windfall, that 400% return on their investment, every Dutch merchant who had a ship and a crew set sail for Asia. There was a flood of Dutch ships sailing south and east. There were at least three and maybe as many as six different Dutch companies on one of these voyages when James Lancaster arrived at South Africa at Table Bay. There weren't any open hostilities here. Everything was friendly on the surface, but it was tense. Kind of a, hi there, Admiral Lancaster. Where, uh, where are you going with that fleet of yours? So the English got out of there as soon as possible. They didn't want to push their luck, only to make landfall at Madagascar, which would soon become a traditional English stopover. It became a necessary English stopover in the later years when the Dutch would officially begin their colony at Cape Town and they became openly hostile with the English. There at Madagascar they traded for food and water and they constructed a pinnace from a kit that they had on board Red Dragon. However, even though they were all recovered from scurvy, the crews ran into another health concern. The diarist on board Red Dragon wrote, quote, Those that died here died most of the flux, which, in our opinion, came with the waters we drank. End quote. They're talking about dysentery, and that's what it was. It tore through the ranks of the fleet. But it wasn't the only killer. For example, the first mate of Red Dragon did die from dysentery and he was going to be buried there at Madagascar on shore when the captain of the Ascension, Captain Brand, was being rowed ashore by the Ascension's bosun's mate. And then a crewman on board the Ascension, probably a gunner, decided to shoot off a volley in commemoration of his fallen comrade, the first mate of Red Dragon. That volley would score a direct hit on the boat carrying Captain Brand and the boatswain's mate, and it would kill both of them. Turned out to be handy, because alongside the mate of Red Dragon, Captain Brand and the bosun's mate were duly buried. Much like the buying of lemon juice, it would take many, many years for the company or the Royal Navy to pass official guidelines about when it was appropriate to fire off commemorative or salutary shots. The voyage was a bit chaotic, but once they left Madagascar, things started going a lot more smoothly. Lancaster and his fellow captains were comfortable in the Indian Ocean, and they made it safely to Sumatra. They landed at the largest city in western Indonesia. That city was considered at the time, as it is today in fact, the door to Mecca or sometimes it was called the porch of Mecca. It was the last stopover for Muslims from Southeast Asia on their pilgrimage to Mecca. That city was Banda Akai. That city was the seat of a sultanate that had very close ties to Mughal India. It had also served as a Portuguese trading post for several decades, not a Portuguese colony. There were already plenty of people there. No, they just had a presence in the region and had a loose trade alliance with the people of Banda Aque. And here we have the opportunity to talk about Portuguese imperial policy, to talk about how they succeeded and why, after a century, they failed in Asia. The Portuguese Carrick was the first ship to truly conquer the waves, even before the Spanish galleon. A 20th century Portuguese poet named Fernando Pessoa wrote, A sea with limits may be Greek or Roman, the sea without end is Portuguese. Their territory stretched from Brazil to Africa to Indonesia, all on the back of the Carrick. It was nearly as large as the territory that was occupied by Polynesians, but this was all under one single ruler.
0: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: However, the Portuguese style of empire was different than that of, say, Spain or later of England and France. And that's what I think most of us think of when we think about colonialism. You know, Spain would claim territory in huge swaths. They would topple great empires like the Aztecs in their quest to control America. The Spanish took over cities, and if one of those cities proved too limiting, they just build a new one. They sailed over tens of thousands of settlers. They put down roots. They started having kids. And all of that led to a deeply complicated and troublesome caste system. That proved to be... Costly and occasionally uneven. But remember, Spain was operating on the viceroyal system. They had viceroys claiming whatever land they could and occasionally fighting each other for yet greater control. That's the system of a large country. A country with a lot of people and powerful rulers. Portugal was not a large country. They didn't have a ton of people. What they had were ships and a loose alliance with the English, which gave them access to even more vessels. So they didn't build an empire of land and colonists. They built an empire of the sea. Practically speaking, in real-world terms, that translates to small colonies in strategic locations, not, you know, Mexico. The Portuguese would conquer port cities if they had to, Sometimes they would just found new cities, or occasionally they would make alliances with local rulers. Whatever they had to do, they did to set up shop at these strategically placed locations. Whatever the tactic, though, they amounted to, essentially, supply depots and centers of commerce with which they bought and stored spices. They would occasionally have a few farms, but that was mostly just to supply the ships that would be coming in and to feed the people that lived there. They didn't have massive, sprawling plantations. It's a system that, well, it's not without the potential for abuse, but at first it worked smoothly enough. The Indonesians had lost the European market in 1453, essentially, and they were happy to have that market reopened. But the Portuguese would take advantage. Once they were firmly established, they started making demands. They demanded lower prices and more privileges and then monopolistic contracts. And they did so because they could. The Portuguese were in a position to demand whatever they wanted. There was no competition after all. But by 1601, there was competition and it was growing quickly. The Dutch were out here cutting deals left and right. They were looking to undercut the Portuguese and they were offering amazing prices. And beyond that, the Dutch were competing with one another. All of those many and varied Dutch voyages that suddenly appeared in Indonesia were all competing with one another to get the most spices possible. So, the Sultan of Banda Aceh realized he was in the position to make demands of his own. In this case, he demanded a Portuguese maiden for his harem. The Portuguese commander, the man who was essentially the admiral of Banda akea uh, the man who the sultan made that demand of, said, yeah, sure, whatever you want, buddy, but he had no intention of actually complying with the order. I mean, who was this guy to make demands of Portugal, after all? But then, When the commander failed to deliver that maiden the sultan now in a position to make demands just kicked him out i imagine at some point the commander turned around and said wait what you were serious about that but he was already out the door you see the sultan had just had word that a dutch flotilla had passed by only two weeks ago now they were in the spice islands at the moment but on their return voyage, they would be sure to notice the lack of a Portuguese presence in Banda Ake. And if not, well, someone would happen along. And that someone did happen along. James Lancaster of England in Red Dragon. He wasn't Dutch, but, you know, that's close enough. He just sailed in with no prior knowledge of any of what I just talked about, only trying to find a port. The sultan gave the English a magnificent welcome. It was similar in tenor to the welcome that Charles Swan and William Dampier enjoyed in the Philippines, only grandiose in scale. The sultan brought out elephants to carry the officers into the center of the city, to his palace. Once they were there, he assembled the captains of the fleet and allowed them to enjoy a rare and exciting dance performed by what the biographer called, quote, the king's damsels. They ate all the finest foods and enjoyed all the luxuries available in Banda Ake. Some of these were the sort of pleasures about which it would have been inappropriate to write at the time. Others of these were the sort of luxuries that would have been frowned upon in the Muslim world, but apparently the sultan of Banda Ake had no problems with drink. They would, according to later chroniclers, hold festivities in the middle of a river, with men submerged up to their chests and floating tables. Boats of beautiful servants would bring around food and drink to all of the revelers who would drink and eat all day out in the river. You know, I recently went on a float trip. I spent a few days on one of the beautiful rivers in the Smoky Mountains. I enjoyed myself on a kayak on the river for several hours, and part of that enjoyment stemmed from the drink. You know, I tried to keep it in moderation. You don't want to drink too much on a kayak in the middle of a river. But once you hit land, you realize just how much you've had to drink all day in the sun. And that is when you have to focus on maneuvering around in a kayak. If there were beautiful maidens bringing me drink at my whims, I imagine I would have had significantly more. The English on this voyage and others certainly did, and many of them died from that drink. And remember, this was in a time when these people largely drank nothing but alcohol. However, they had business to attend to. Lancaster brought out a letter from the Queen, a gold-rimmed letter penned by a royal calligrapher, which greatly pleased the Sultan. But even more than that letter, what I think pleased him the most were the manners displayed by James Lancaster. Remember, he was a merchant captain for the Levant Company. He was something of an emissary between England and the Ottoman Empire. He had also been to India before, back in 1592, and visited with Muslim Mughal rulers. And that empire was the home nation of this sultan here, so Sir James knew all of the proprieties. The sultan was happy with the English and welcomed them as trading partners. They signed the necessary contracts. The English took over management of the formerly Portuguese factory, and then they began to bargain. Unfortunately, though, Ake was more important as a strategic naval city, a political entity, than it was a merchant city. All they really had to trade was pepper. And, you know, pepper's grand, but it's not the most valuable spice. It's nothing on, say, nutmeg. But, regardless, they did buy up a bunch of pepper, tons and tons of the stuff. But Lancaster did have his eyes on richer halls, so he took them deeper into Indonesia, into the Malaccas, what the people on that voyage called the Islands of Spicery. They dodged a few Portuguese ships on their way into the Spice Islands, and they met with a Dutch flotilla there. And once again that meeting was all smiles and friendliness, but the Dutch admiral did write back to his commanding officers in the Netherlands. I'm not going to quote it. Instead, if I could be forgiven for paraphrasing here, that letter went something like, All right, guys, the English are here. They've got a bunch of ships in there looking to cut into our nutmeg trade, and that is not okay. But, you know, write me back. What should we do here? It was clear that this Dutch captain, who we will meet later in our story, was very displeased with the English presence. However, that would have been a pretty accurate representation of what the English were about here. They were looking to cut into the nutmeg trade. Currently, the nutmeg trade was controlled mostly by the Portuguese, but the Dutch did already have a fairly substantial presence. Which means that pickings were slim when it went to colonial holdings or even potential trading partners in the region. But there were a few, just a few, The opening passage of The Honourable Company by John Key reads, Every overseas empire had to begin somewhere. A flag had to be raised, territory claimed, and settlement attempted. In the dimly perceived conduct of a small band of bedraggled pioneers, stiff with scurvy and sand in their hose, it may be difficult to determine to what extent those various criteria were met. The seed from which grew the most extensive empire the world has ever seen was sown on Pulo Roon in the Banda Islands at the eastern end of the Indonesian archipelago. As the island of Runnymede is to British constitutional history, the island of Roon is to the British imperial history. The island of Runnymede, by the way, is the location of the sealing of Magna Carta. To say that the island of Rune is comparable to Runnymede is a bold statement, but it does have teeth. Rune is tiny, a tiny island of virtually no consequence. It's only two miles by half a mile in size. It has no source of its own fresh water, and there are no settlements or buildings of any real note. There were some people on the island, but just a small village that was overseeing their grove. But that grove was of consequence. The trees of that grove were nutmeg trees. They were the primary source of income for the people of Rune. Now, usually, the merchants on the island of Rune would ship their nutmeg to other Indonesian islands to be sold to local merchants there. Those merchants bought it up to sell it to the Portuguese. That makes sense because the island of Rune didn't have nearly enough nutmeg to justify a colonial settlement. Unless, of course, you were late to the game and needed somewhere to get your nutmeg. The English were elated to find an island of spicery that didn't already have a European presence, even if it was tiny. The captains of the voyage treated the village elder of Pulo Roon with as much dignity and pomp as they had the sultan of Indonesia's greatest city, of the door to Mecca. Lancaster was courting the village elder and the people of Pulo Roon, and it worked. They agreed to sell him all the nutmeg they had available, but that still wasn't much. So he moved on to their neighbor island of Pulo Ai which was just as small, if not smaller, and bought their stores of nutmeg as well. He didn't get much from either island, but even still, it was an amazing investment. See, these traders, the people of Pulo Ai and Pulo Run, didn't usually charge very much for their nutmeg. They were, after all, trading with Indonesians who were going to market up to be sold to the Europeans. And of course... Those Europeans would mark it up once again, when sold on the European market. But what Lancaster did was cut out that Indonesian merchantman. He bought directly from the supplier, and he even gave the people of Pulau Roon and Pulau Ai much better rates than they would have received from their Indonesian counterparts. Which made the people of Pulau Roon and Pulau Ai quite happy, and it made Lancaster quite happy because he received it at a much lower cost than any of his European competitors. But he did more than just buy nutmeg at Pulau Run Pulo, Pulo I, He set up diplomatic ties and even the potential for a colonial settlement there. But with that business done, after nearly a year and a half away from home, the fleet turned around to return to England. The voyage home was equally long and arduous, but luckily they lost no ships and no cargo. They did lose quite a few sailors on the voyage, but sailors are cheap, and if a few sailors are to die, well, a few less shares have to be paid out. But when they returned to England, they found that things had changed there at home. Queen Elizabeth had died while they were gone, and James I sat the throne. They also discovered, to their dismay, that King James had recently acquired, somehow or other, a windfall of pepper, and he was busy selling that pepper to fill his royal coffers. When Red Dragon arrived with her own massive haul of pepper, James put a moratorium on the spice to anyone but himself. As you might imagine, a number of rich and powerful merchants who had a stake in the voyage protested loudly to the king, and so he relented, but that had almost equally as disastrous consequences. Pepper flooded English markets, and the price therefore plummeted. The company, with their first haul, mostly Pepper, very nearly didn't earn their money back from this voyage. They did, but they had to tell their shareholders, who were deeply displeased with this news, that four-fifths of their initial investment would not be returned to them. At least, not yet. The company needed that money still to fund their next voyage, which, they assured everyone, would be much more profitable. They did, after all, have a line on that sweet, sweet nutmeg trade. And that would, in fact, be a lot more profitable so much more profitable that King James himself would back one of their future voyages, and he would add a few titles to his already fairly grandiose list. In the years to come, King James I would be styled as King of England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Puloway, and Pularoon. That is, of course, Pulo I and Puloroon. King James did not do so immediately, but he would do so after several more voyages of the English East India Company to Asia. As the company showed more and more promise, the king and his family and many of the most prominent members of his court would back the company. And then, once the Stuarts were kicked off the throne by the Civil War, the Commonwealth and Cromwell would back the company financially, And then, once the commonwealth fell and the Stuarts were restored, they continued to back the company. Of course, that second run of the Stuarts, Charles II and later James II, would have to fight several wars with the Dutch due to their backing of the company. But more on that later. For now, the English had a presence in Asia, and that moment marks the dawn of one of the largest and most powerful empires that the world has ever known. The British Empire was unlike any empire in history, even the Romans, even the Mongols. The British were different, partly because they weren't necessarily a political empire. They were a mercantile empire. And I think partly due to that mercenary nature of this empire, the people of Southeast Asia and India and China were facing what would become one of the darkest periods of their entire history. Of course, that's all for the future. Next time, we're going to look at the expansion of the English East India Company as well as the Dutch presence in the East Indies. We're going to discuss the ever-changing landscape in Southeast Asia and look at the wars that were fought over control of the spice trade and we're going to see how drastically that culture shifted between Queen Elizabeth and eventually the Glorious Revolution, which will bring us up to date with the crew of Signet, with William Dampier and Charles Swan, who were currently on the fringes of company power, but were about to run headlong into the English and Dutch East India companies. But before we leave today, I'd like to leave you with a hypothetical. I've spent the last three episodes talking about the relatively heroic, or if at least exciting, origins of the East India Company, the dashing, adventurous nature of the men who founded the company in its infancy. So imagine that you were a young southwestern Englishman in, say, 1714, maybe you're from Devonshire, and... Your father had been a sailor, and his father before him, so of course, you were also a sailor. You'd grown up hearing stories of Devon's greatest sons. I'm talking about big names here. Francis Drake and the Hawkins clan, people like Walter Raleigh. All of them were from your region of England, and all of them had signed up to fight the Spanish in the Great Anglo-Spanish War. And they'd done so as privateers in service of their monarch and their country. And for that bravery, for the heroism that they showed, they were knighted. Some of them were landed. They grew to be rich and powerful and celebrated, famous men. And some of those men went on to found the East India Company, the most powerful organization in your whole nation. That is what awaits those who serve their country. And so when your country calls upon you to fight in the war, This time, a war of the Spanish succession, you follow in the footsteps of your forebears, of Francis Drake and the Hawkins. You sign up to become a privateer, and you fight, and you suffer, and you lose friends, but all through it, you prosper, and you win profits for England. And then, after the war is done, England abandons you. They leave you on an island, a backwater, on the other side of the world with absolutely no support structure in place. They take their ships with them, and you realize that all of the glories of your forebears are a thing of the past. You, instead of growing rich and famous and powerful, were forgotten. How would you respond to that? Imagine that all you have is a small boat, maybe a boat you built yourself, and a gun, and a sword, and several thousand other men and women in your exact situation. I suspect that most of us would do exactly what the thousands of young men and women who were abandoned by England in this situation did. They declared their own independence and built a republic of pirates. That is yet far in the future, but I couldn't stop thinking about that when thinking about the piratical origins of this most powerful empire in the world. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a review or a rating. And everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.